I ask you if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read our passage of scripture for this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Romans 12, 1 to 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many are one body in Christ. Each individual members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion with our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, as we consider this passage and these gifts together this morning, we are confident that through the power of your Holy Spirit, each of the gifts is manifested in this local body. You have people in this local church who are gifted in these specific ways. And in many of them, we are, are all, all of us commanded to, to serve. But Lord, there are some among us, and we, we thank you for them who are exemplary in these things, as they, they show through the, the difference that the Holy Spirit has made in their lives that, that they are eager to serve in these practical ways. We, we pray that you, that you would, um, by your Spirit, help us, all of us, to be examining ourselves and to, to be considering whether we are serving in the gifts that you have given us, to see whether we are using the gifts that you've given us, not for our own purposes, but, Lord, for the purpose of the building of your church, for the glory of your name. We, we pray, Father, that, that you would help us, Lord, when we need to, to repent of our failure to use the gifts that you've given us, and even at times to even walk in obedience. Lord, all of these, in all of these things, we, we know that the perfect standard is Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help all of us to humble ourselves because we have the same mind in us, as that which is ours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, may we be willing to serve in whatever whatever need we have in our midst for your glory and for the building of your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. A number of years ago, the University of Washington genetic engineer gave a lecture about the human body at Multnomah Bible College. And he explained that the average human heart pumps over 1,000 gallons of blood a day, over 55 million gallons in a lifetime. That's enough to fill 13 super tankers. Your heart never sleeps, beating 2.5 billion times in a, life, in, in a lifetime. Your lungs contain 1,000 miles of capillaries. 
The process of exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide is so complicated, he said, that it is more difficult to exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide than for a man shot out of a cannon to carve the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin as he passes by. As an, as an aside, we went to the circus on Friday and actually saw somebody shot out of a cannon. And I can't imagine him stopping to engrave the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin as he went past. He says that the, uh, the, the DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. That's 1.8 meters, nearly 6 feet of DNA folded into each cell nucleus. A nucleus is 6 microns. That's, that's 1 millionth of a meter long. He said that is putting like, is like putting 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. And it isn't simply stuffed in, it's folded in. If it's folded one way, it becomes, the cell becomes a skin cell. Folded another way, it becomes a liver cell, and so on. He said to write out the information in one cell would take 300 volumes, each volume 500 pages thick. The human body contains enough DNA. If it were stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. The body uses energy efficiently. If an average adult rides a bike for one hour at 10 miles per hour, it uses the amount of energy contained in three ounces of carbohydrate. If a car were this efficient with gasoline, it would get 900 miles to the gallon. And he was saying all these things to testify uh, of the wonder of the creation of the human body. But there's a, a book recently written by, um, by, by Bryson, and, and it's called The Body, an Occupant's Guide. You may have heard of it. It's been on, on the, the uh, New York Times bestseller list. And, and in a review from the New York Times, he's describing some of the things that, that Bill Bryson says. And he says, in, in some respects... Again, this is this perspective of the, of the New York Times and of Bill Bryson. The human, in some respects, the human body is terribly designed. Said it's a collection of evolution's scotch tape and bubblegum fixes. See, for example, our injury-prone knees. Or when things can go horribly awry, whether from, from tennis elbow or deadly infections. So the, from the atheist point of view, the human body is terribly designed. And, and, and in his book, Bill Bison, Bryson talks about a lot of the, these same wonderful things about your DNA and the power of your brain and, and so on. But, but he denies God. He denies that, that God made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not the product of evolution. You're the product of Almighty God. God knew you intimately from before the foundation of the world, and He knew each moment of your life from the moment of conception to the moment of your conversion to the moment of your expiration. God knit you perfectly together in your mother's womb. Every organ, every cell, every mitochondrion, every endoplasmic reticulum performing the function for which God intended it for the precise time frame that God intended it. So yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by Almighty God. 
But the church is also a body. The Apostle Paul repeatedly uses the metaphor of the human body to describe the church. We've already looked at 1 Corinthians 12 a few weeks ago. Verse 27 says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Just stop and think what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying you are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. The body has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So in the body of Christ, we have, we have feet and eyes and, and ears and noses. You know, we, we, we praise God for the way that God has put the church to body, the, 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 put the, bo- the church body together. It's, it's not as if there's the, the church body had like a, a giant eyeball. And that's it. That would be, that'd be grotesque, all these eyeballs floating around. We're, we're, a giant, we're all not giant ears. There's a, the, the many different parts of the body. And all the parts of the body are vitally, vitally important. It's not just your physical body that's fearfully and wonderfully made. Your, your church body is fearfully and wonderfully made. It's, it's not all just put together with scotch tape and bubble gum. The gifts, all of the gifts, have huge value. They're all essential. Your gifts are essential. Now at times, people, are, are, people tend to, to underestimate certain gifts or, or overestimate or overvalue other gifts. But again, every gift is vitally important. And God has put every gift together, not just in the, the universal church we'll talk about, but in, in each local church. And the gifts have value. And to the degree that we underestimate certain gifts or overestimate other gifts, we, we are drawing our understanding from the world, from the world, the flesh, and the devil, instead of from God and his word. So this morning we're going to be talking about, about the serving gifts. And again, as I, as I mentioned in my prayer, that the, the serving gifts are a reflection of Christ because Christ is a servant. Turn with me, please, for a moment to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul is here commanding us to have this mind, which we already have as Christians. You already have the mind of Christ. He's saying, Have the mind of Christ because you have the mind of Christ. And then he reminds us of what the mind of Christ is. It's it's humility here. Who, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God of things to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of what? Of a servant. And and not just, not just in, in, I mean, it's already an infinite condescension for for God the Son to take on human flesh and to come into the, the universe that he created. It's already an infinite condescension, but he becomes a servant. If he were to come as a king, that would be glorious, but he comes as a servant. And and not just any servant, but, but the lowest form of servant. And he serves, he humbles himself, even though he is, is almighty God in human flesh. Found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so the Apostle Paul is, is calling us to, to, to see the example of Christ as the supreme servant and then to follow in the service of Christ by serving each other, by dying, probably not, even though there may come a time of dying physically for others, but he's talking about dying to your flesh, dying to your desires, that you're putting yourself below other people, that you are valuing others just as Christ valued others. Again, not to the same extent. We could never do that, but this is the example that we are to follow. We have, through the power of the Spirit, this mind of Christ. And so because of that, because of the gospel, we now seek opportunities to serve others in the church. We've already been, been talking about the, the foundational gifts of, of the apostles and prophets and evangelists and then those who build on the foundation of, of pastors and teachers. And now we're, we're talking about, now we're talking about the serving gifts. And these are equally important in the local church as the other offices of, of pastor and teacher that continue to this day. You are important in this church. As believers, we are all members of the body of Christ. So when you come to Christ, you become part of, of the universal church, the, the church of, of brothers and sisters from throughout history and around the world, people from every tribe and, and tongue and nation. You become part of that church, the universal church. There's only one body of Christ. However, we also need to recognize that quite often when, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the church, he's also referring to, and specifically referring to, to individual local churches. Local churches like this local church. So if you're a Christian, you're a member of the, the universal body of Christ. And if this is your church home, then you are a member in this local church. Now here, I'm not speaking about, about formal church membership. That, that's another sermon. I'm speaking of, of being a member as a synonym for a body part. right? So your, your eyes and your, your nose and your lips and your tongue and your, your fingers and your toes are, are members. So in this sense, you are a member of this local body. You are part of this local body. You belong to this local body. And so what I want us now, by God's grace, to consider is what your part is in this body, as a body part in this body. So again, this is the, the sixth sermon in our, our parenthetical excursus on the spiritual gifts prior to our study of the book of Acts. And so this morning, what I, I want to be having us have a look at here this morning is, is, is often referred to as the serving gifts. As I explained earlier in our study, all, all, this, all the gifts are serving gifts. In that the gifts aren't your gifts. They are God's gifts. Your gifts are God's gifts to serve the church. They don't belong to you. However, the serving gifts, as distinct from word gifts, primarily involve practical service. So several of the ones that, that, we, that we looked at already. So the uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, they are... are really word gifts. And we'll look at more of, of the word gifts, Lord willing, next time. But these serving gifts that we'll be looking at, at this morning are, 
are drawn, most of them, from Romans chapter 12, where we'll see the gifts of service and giving and leadership and mercy. And I'm also going to, to include administration and faith, which are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. So the first gift, then, is service. Well, it makes sense if we're looking at the serving gifts that the first gift we're going to look at is, is service, the gift of service. And I'm going to spend, spend a bulk of our time here. Just look for a moment at Romans 12, verses 6 and 7. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He talks about prophecy and proportion of our faith. And then if service in our serving. And the one who teaches in his teaching. So back to the word gifts again. So it's, it's this, this particular, we're focusing on if service in our serving. Okay, so it's this, this gift of serving, as is all the gifts, comes to you as a gift of God's grace, again, for the purpose of serving in the local church. 1 Corinthians 12, 5 says, Paul says, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So we need to understand that, that we're, we're all called to serve one another out of obedience to God's law, the law of love. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. You're called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so, so if you're a Christian, well, you're all, everybody's commanded to serve, but only Christians really can, can even begin to, to serve in the way that, that God commands us to serve. We're all commanded to serve, but some are particularly gifted in their service. Some are particularly gifted in service. The gift of a service refers to loving service in a variety of practical ways. So the person who is gifted as a servant looks for opportunities to serve others in practical ways. The Holy Spirit gives them the desire to, to serve others, to see needs, to, to see, and, and they give them, gives them the strength to, to selflessly support others in those needs. 1 Peter 4.11 says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides. By the strength that God provides. Now, it's, it's pretty evident if somebody's serving in their own strength because it'll, it'll be tending to be selfish and it'll be tending to be person be wanting others to, to give them accolades or to pat on the back, or if, if somebody doesn't recognize their service, they're going to get upset about it. Okay, they, they, they grumble about it in their hearts. But, but when the Holy Spirit is, is enabling somebody to serve, especially somebody who's gifted as a servant, it's going to look different. The Holy Spirit will, will help them to serve others because he or she genuinely esteems others more highly than they, than they serve and they see themselves. The gift of servant is, is, is less likely to be inclined to be motivated by accolades or thanks, but by the desire to serve God by serving the church. The gifted servant isn't practicing righteousness to be seen by others, Matthew 6.1, but out of love for God and others. The gift of service is, is largely synonymous with the, the gift of, of helping from 1 Corinthians 12.28. The word that's translated there, helping, means literally take up a matter or to take up helpfully. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament describes it as, as the activity of love in the dealings of the community. And this church has a number of people who are gifted in this area. You know, if you flip the switch in the, the men's bathroom downstairs, the light goes on, 
You give little thought about it because of the man who replaced the ballast the other day. Or upstairs outside the nursery, when you turn the light on, it's because, and it works, it's because somebody replaced those big, long fluorescent tubes that are there. Again, we don't, we don't think about this. We, we just we just flick on a, a, light, a switch and, it, and it, the light works and we don't, we don't think about it. But, but somebody has served to enable that to take place. Likewise, we're, we're going to be taking communion. And somebody joyfully prepared the bread. Somebody lovingly filled each communion cup out, out of service. Loving service for God and the body of Christ. Many servants faithfully and, and thoroughly clean the church. And servants do it all for the glory of God, whether anyone else knows what they're doing or not. Now, these are the people who have the gift of service, or the gift of helps. Now, again, we think about it from, from the, the perspective that is often taken, that these, these gifts aren't, aren't really valued. Right? If, if people are looking at things from a wrong perspective, from a worldly or or sinful or even devilish perspective. These gifts aren't valued. People want the gifts of, that are going to, with position, that are attached to them. They tend to that. And others tend to, to exalt and, and to, to show honor to, in, in a, in sometimes in a way that is really inappropriate for, for somebody who is serving in one way and, and not in another way. This is not one of the gifts that, that people exalt, but it's exalted by God. Again, think of the example of Christ and his service. Service is vital in the life of the church. It's so vital that the apostles established the office of the deacon in order to fulfill this role. Now we're thankful for the, the many people in this church who have gifts for, for helping a gift of service. And we're, we're praying that the, the, the Lord is, is at work. We trust the Lord is at work. And we've identified three men who we are going to be bringing before the church as, as deacons. Daryl and, and Luke and, and, and Matthias, in, in the coming months, we're going to be bringing them forward for your affirming in the office of deacon. So just think specifically about, about that as we, we look at this next little subsection here. The Greek word for service is diakonia. Again, from which we, it's a transliteration from which we get the word deacon. So let's just turn for a moment to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be spending a lot more time uh, there in, in the coming months when we get to our study in, in Acts. But in, in verses 1 to 7, we have the establishment of the office of the deacon. It is established here because we're qualified men were appointed to ensure, look at, at verse 1, to ensure that the Hellenists, so these are the, the Greek-speaking Jews, that the, their widows, were their needs were provided for in the daily distribution. Okay, and they, they, were, they were told to do this so that the apostles, in verse, 12, verse 2, were, were not distracted. They, were, they would have to give up preaching the word to serve tables. And so the church was to, to identify men who were of, seven men who are of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and to be appointed to that. And, but the apostles were going to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and even though this is dealing directly with apostles, there is a practical application of this for the church today. So that, that as, as pastors, 
not that we stop serving because we're commanded to serve as well, but we have those who are particularly gifted in this area will serve as deacons in order to ensure that, that these things take place and the pastors can focus on the word of God and prayer. Again, it's not that a pastor is, is any more important. These, are, these, are, these deacons here are to glorify God by following the footsteps of Christ, by serving others, and by coordinating the efforts of the church to serve others. So later on, by the time that the by the time the church is, is established, Paul presents a list of qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. So I'm going to read that for us. Uh, but just listen carefully. Again, it's important as we consider bringing these men before the church as deacons. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So now as we think about our context here 2,000 years later, the vital focus or a vital focus of deacons remains ensuring that people's financial needs are met. Yeah, that, that one of the, the, the clear, important roles of a deacon is, is to, to be aware of, of, of financial needs in the body and to make sure that the, the right resources are allocated towards those people. However, in our current cultural context, the, the social safety net means that there are, are really fewer financial needs. They still definitely exist, but there are fewer financial needs in our culture than there were in, in, in the early church. But there are many other practical needs for service. For example, the, the need to get someone to a medical appointment or to the grocery store or the need for help with, with cleaning. You know, the kind of service might mean cleaning a yard in the spring or, or mowing a lawn in the summer or, or raking leaves in the fall or shoveling a driveway in the winter. Again, this is especially important for others in the, in the, local, in the local church. We would also think here of, of other believers from other churches and, and even unbelievers in our neighborhoods. Deacons aren't the ones who are required to do all of the service, but they are to be on the lookout for the issues and then to, to ensure that the service gets done. So this is mean they're going to be on the lookout for others who are also gifted as servants to help serve in these areas. And also in our context with, with a church building, deacons can ensure that the maintenance is taken care of. Again, that they, the deacons are not required to do all the maintenance, but, but they are to seek to, that the work gets done. Deacons can also in, involve organizing help with technology and, and music and, and finances or any of the, the practical needs in the church. Again, it can involve any service in any practical area out of love and concern for God's church. Okay, so that's, that's the gift of service. Now moving a little more quickly. Giving. Paul goes on here in Romans 12, 8. The one who contributes in generosity. Again, like so many of these gifts, we're all commanded to do it. 
Giving is, is one of the, the one another commands. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there may be no collecting when I come. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul said, each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we're all to, to make giving a part of regular regular part of worship when we come together to joyfully give to the work of the Lord in, and here primarily in the local church. However, there, there are some who are uniquely gifted in this area. They, they are particularly generous and their, their giving goes beyond that of a regular offering. Now, these aren't always wealthy people. Their giving is simply a, a greater proportion of their income than that of most. And they're, they're content to keep it between them and the Lord. They, they don't, their left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. They, they receive great joy by being able to give. Now, I deliberately avoid knowing who gives how much in this local church, but, but I do know that this is a giving church. I know that many here must have the gift of giving because you give on a, on a level that is far beyond that of, of many larger and more wealthy churches. Our little church is operating on a shoestring budget, but your giving has, has gone far beyond anything that we could have hoped or imagined. Not only do you regularly give to the church, but you've sent money to help provide food and medical supplies for people in, in Ukraine and to provide help for our missionaries who are serving Ukrainian refugees. You have given generously to help a family who's facing a medical crisis. And the list goes on. Every, every year when, when you do, when we, we take up our Christmas Eve offering, you give generously love offerings to the missionaries. And then on top of that, you, you give to us as a family. It, church, I, I've got to say, I, I, and I've talked about this before, but, but I'm so encouraged by you and, and your gift of giving. I served as a, as a lay elder in Australia in a, in a, in a church that was, was probably 15 times as big as this one. But, but your giving far outstrips them in, in, by, by way of percentage. It's, and there were some very wealthy people in that church. Be encouraged. Some of you are serving in the gifts that God has given you, and this gift specifically of giving. I guess the gift of giving is the gift that keeps on giving. Next, leadership. Paul goes on in verse 8. The one who leads with zeal. Now, the, the one that, the word that's used here means to, to rule or direct or to be at the head of. It's, it's used to describe the qualification of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and, and also of, of a deacon to manage his household well. It's related to the gift of administration that we're going to look at in a few minutes. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it's translated rule. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it's pronounced, or it's translated rather, who are over you. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord's to admonish you. Now, some people do not like the, the concept of, of someone ruling or being over another because they don't like to submit. But that's how God has ordered the church. That's how God has put the body together. There are those who are called and commanded to lead. 
as those who will give an account. And again, Peter warns in 1 Peter 5 not to lord it over others, but, but for, for leaders in the church to see themselves as, as under-shepherds, in terms of pastors, or under-shepherds under Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd. So I trust that it will be with humility, and increasingly so. We all have different roles, but we are all equal. It's no, the, the leader is no, import, and no more important than anyone else. It's, it's the same, tr- same as true in, the, in, in war. The, the, the general is important, but those soldiers, the ones with, with boots on the ground, are vitally important to the success of the campaign. Again, we all have different roles, but we're all equal. No one body part is more important than any other body part. Those who are gifted to lead in the church are, will, will serve in different capacities, but, but God has called them to lead with zeal. With zeal to, to, to be tireless and to, be, to not give up, not to waver in the face of, of opposition. Or in the face of, of, of weariness through, through dealing with the, with the sin of others or their own sin. But to be zealous for the glory of God in the church, for the advance of of the gospel, primarily for the growth of the church in, in depth, but also in breadth. The Holy Spirit enables leaders, those, those who are gifted in this way, to serve humbly, selflessly, and tirelessly in the church. And some are going to serve in the offices of, of elder and deacon. Others are going to lead in various ministries and activities in the church. Others, are not, they're not going to serve in any official capacity, but through their, their, their gifting and the pattern of their lives, they will lead by the example of their lives. They provide an example for others to follow. That's leadership. We often tell our children, you're leading. You're always leading. Whether you're leading in the right direction or the wrong direction, you are leading. And those who are gifted as leaders are those who are going to be conscious of the fact that, that, that they want to set an example for others and they're, they're zealous to, be, to spur each other on to, to love and good deeds. And so, so gifted leaders are going to raise the bar by God's grace in the godly behavior and conversation with others and so that others will follow their example. Fourth, mercy. Paul finishes the, the gift, list of gifts in Romans 12.8 saying that the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We saw this from 2 Corinthians 9, that the Lord loves a, a, a cheerful giver, but, but the Lord loves who, who does all acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Again, as, as those who have received the unfathomable mercy of Christ, we should all be quick and intentionally eager to extend mercy to others. In the parable of the wicked servant, the, the king says to the servant who had been forgiven a great debt, but did not forgive his fellow servant, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you. Matthew eighteen thirty three. We have received the, the riches of God's mercy, infinite mercy in Christ Jesus. And then, so as those who have been forgiven, we will be quick and eager to to extend mercy to others. Out of the the debt of the riches of of Christ, we we give others that mercy. God is glorified. We reflect Christ in having mercy on others. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Matthew 5, 7. But I believe that the form of mercy here goes beyond merely forgiving others, as, as essential as that is. It extends to actively reaching out to those in need. So think here of the, the care that the Good Samaritan showed for his neighbor, who had been robbed and beaten. Again, using the same words, Jesus said, You go and do likewise, Luke 10, 37. Compassion is really a good synonym for, for the mercy that's in view here. And, and yet again, we're all to display this kind of mercy, but there are, there are those who are especially gifted in this way. That these people are keenly aware of the needs of others and are always on the lookout for ways to help. They, they often instinctively aware of those who are in pain or those who are in need. And in my experience, it's also, it's quite, it's quite often been those who experience pain themselves that are eager to extend that kind of mercy to others. It might mean visiting someone who's in hospital or a shut-in, dropping off a meal to a new mom, dropping by with a, with a cup of coffee for a lady who can't get out. It might mean inviting a, a, a lonely single person over for a family dinner. Seeking to, to, to care for, for, for somebody who is, who is dying. And I see several people who are gifted in this way in the church as those who have extend mercy to others. People gifted in this way look for ways to show mercy in the church and the wider community. And, and so, so we are seeking to, to, to have the Lord's wisdom as we want to image Christ by reaching out to others in the church and community. Jesus came primarily to save his elect, but he didn't limit his ministry to them. Baruch reminded us so well uh, two weeks ago that that when, when we serve, it's, it's for the sake of reflecting Christ. Yes, we hope it's going to lead for opportunities for evangelism. But when we show mercy to others, we're, we're, we want to reflect Christ. We want to love others as Christ loved others. Think about the, the ten lepers. Only one of them returned to give thanks to God. Jesus, Jesus had mercy on all of them, but only one of them returned. Jesus didn't then revoke his mercy. He knew full well what they were going to do, and he healed them anyway. And so we should seek opportunities to extend mercy to others simply for the sake of glorifying God. Jesus taught and fed and healed a great number of people, but he knew that many would never come to saving faith. May we be content to serve others and, and trust their eternal outcome to Christ, even as we seek opportunities to evangelize, yes, but we glorify God and we serve no matter what they do with Christ. So like Jesus, our first concern is for the church. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially of those who are the, of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. And, and again, there, there are many needs in the church. There are many people that need mercy ministry in the church, not just for practical concerns, but for fellowship, for encouragement, and for prayer. And so, so maybe you have that gift and, and seek the opportunity then to, to exercise and to, to explore that gift and see what God does in and through you. Okay, just two more. Number five, administration. So now we jump over to 1 Corinthians 12, where the, where the gift of administration is mentioned in verse 8. The, the word that's translated administration in the ESV and NASB and, and 
uh, New King James and NIV is, the, the King James is translated governments. Now the Greek word kubernesis uh, means to steer a ship, to steer a ship. And so it's, it's closely tied with the gift of leadership. Figuratively, it, it came to refer to the statesman or the, the civic leader. And this is another one of those, those gifts that isn't usually exalted by people, but is exalted by God. These are people who know how to get the job done. They're organized, efficient leaders. They're able to, to break down a project into its component parts. They're, they're concerned about the details of tasks and are able to identify the gifting of others in order to delegate responsibility. And some would, would think of uh, of the, the gift of administration as, as boring. Well, it would definitely be, without gifted administrators, the church would not be boring. It'd be crazy. We, we, we need and we have gifted administrators in this local body. Those who are, are gifted in administration serve in many areas of the church. They, it can involve organizing others into service roles, work projects, cleaning, and so on. It, it can involve those who are gifted to organize people to, to work in the men's, women's, and children's ministries or in the nursery. The gift is, the, this per, gifted person is, is usually happiest working behind the scenes, organizing others and, and crunching numbers. The church needs people like that. I, I pray that the Lord will, will gift me more in this area, but, but I certainly do not have gifts of administration. We need to pray too that the Lord will, will gift others and, and send others who are gifted in this area to our church. We need more people in the church who are gifted to serve as, as administrative leaders in the church, in the office of the elder, but, but also in the other administrative tasks in the life of the church. So there's a sense in which some who are gifted as administrators or, or otherwise qualified will be elders in the church. They, they're going to serve as, as, so to speak, helmsmen of, of the congregation, helping direct the church to its God-given goals. And the churches have, have quite often they'll have vocational pastors who are gifted in, in specific areas. And usually the, the first vocational pastor that, that a church will have is primarily responsible for teaching. That's just the way most churches do it. But if we're ever in a position to be able to, to hire other pastors, other vocational pastors, I'd love for our second pastor, second vocational pastor who would be responsible primarily for for counseling discipleship, both to do counseling and to facilitate a whole church approach to counseling. And again, what, what often happens, at least in, in my experience, that when a church hires a, a third pastor, if, if we ever had the, 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 the numerical needs to do this and, the, and the, the financial ability to be able to do this, I'd love for our church to be able to hire an administrative pastor. Such a man would be particularly gifted in being able to practically implement the goals of the church. The man who would be passionate about the direction of the church, who knows the strengths and the weaknesses of those in the church, and who helps people serving in their gifts to work together to build the church for the glory of God. I guess, as I mentioned, this is not my particular gifting. Pastor Joshua is, is more gifted in this area, but is, is so busy with his, his work and family responsibilities that, that he can't give it, 
give this area of focus as, as somebody would if they were on staff. And I saw my church in Louisville, I had a man who, who served gloriously in that, in that capacity. Again, I think the, the, the whole time I was there, I think he, he only preached in the pulpit once. And I mean, he was, a, he was a gifted teacher in his own right. But he wanted to, to serve in other areas. And, and he, God really used him to, to help build the church. Well, the last spiritual gift that we're going to look at, of uh, the gift of service, is, is the gift of faith. The gift of faith. It's identified in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. And, and like so many of the gifts... Faith is something that all Christians have. If we didn't have faith, we wouldn't be Christians. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews eleven six. All Christians have received faith as a gift. Now, you understand that faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one might boast. So consider all those negatives in those two verses. Not your doing. Not your works. No room for boasting. Salvation does not come through any human agency. Salvation is through Christ alone, through his atoning work, believing what Christ did on the cross for our sins. Paul is saying here that, that the faith that saves is part of the gift. Your faith is not yourself, of yourself. It is God's gift. But when Paul talks about the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, he's, he's talking about something else. He's talking about another, another kind of faith. It, it's still faith in God, but it's the kind of faith that trusts God to do what God has promised to do in his word. As one definition of, uh, explains, the gift of faith is the God-given ability to see what God wants done and to exercise unwavering confidence in him to accomplish it in spite of any obstacles. So then faith is listed among the serving gifts because those who are so gifted see situations from the Lord's perspective and lay hold of the Lord's promises and then seek to act by God's provision. Right? So, so these people so gifted, they see things from God's perspective. They lay hold of the, Lord, of the Lord's promises and they do it by the Lord's provision. And in so doing, they help to stimulate the faith of others through their example of faith. George Mueller clearly had the gift of faith. When the Lord laid it on George Mueller's heart to establish orphanages in England, he had only two shillings in his pocket, equivalent of about 50 cents in our currency. He depended on faith to serve the Lord. Without telling anyone his needs except God alone, he received 1,400,000 pounds, the equivalent of $7 million during the course of his ministry. One morning at the orphanage, I really would recommend you, you read George Mueller's autobiography. But one morning in the orphanage, he was, he, he was in the dining hall with 300 children. They're waiting to eat breakfast and there was no food on the table. And Mueller simply prayed. He had no money, no, no food. But Mueller simply prayed, God, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. Amen. That's a prayer of faith. Less than a minute later, there was a knock on the door. It was the baker. He'd woken up at 3 a.m. with the thought that the orphanage needed bread. And so he baked bread that morning and delivered it to the children. 
And then soon after, a milk truck broke down right in front of the orphanage. And the milk had to be taken off the truck. It would have been spoiled, so it was all donated to the orphanage. Now, was this, was this just a coincidence? Did the baker just happen to wake up being prompted by the Lord to, to bake extra bread? Did the milk truck just happen to break down right outside the door of the orphanage? Just as Mueller prayed faithfully for food that wasn't even on the table? Of course not. The faithful God was providing for his children. And George Mueller had faith in the faithful God. Mueller said, Faith is the assurance that the thing which God has said in his word is true. And that God will act according to what he has said in his word. Faith is not a matter of impressions, nor probabilities, nor of appearances. This is the kind of faith that is able to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances. The, the person who has the gift of faith is a prayer. Their, their default. As soon as something dangerous happens or, or something or, or something scary or they get bad news, their, their natural response is to pray. They are a prayer. The natural, their natural response is to go to God and to trust Him with the outcome, whether it's, it's a simple need or in the middle of a crisis. They know that, as Spurgeon said, prayer is the sender, slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. They know that, that God has decreed that He would work in response to the prayers of His people, and so they pray. This is the person who follows the example of the Apostle Paul, walking by faith not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.7. Yet in many churches today, the, the gift of faith is either distorted or it's lacking altogether. In the so-called word faith movement, the concept of faith has become so corrupted that it is faith in faith, not in God, the real object of our faith. And the so-called faith is for things that are not promised in his word, things for, for health and, and wealth. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have churches that are merely rationalistic. And the teaching in these, in these churches might be orthodox, but it lacks the power of the Holy Spirit that brings changes in the hearts of those who hear. When I expound the Word of God, by God's grace, it is in faith that the Lord will send His Word to accomplish that for which He sends it. I don't have natural abilities as a speaker. It is only by faith that I can preach the word. And it's only by faith that God will bring the word to bear on your hearts. I can't do any of it myself. It's all of faith. Please turn for a moment to James chapter 5. Uh, James chapter 5, 13 to 18. Here we, we have someone who is, is sick because of sin in their life. And the elders are called to pray over him, anointing him with oil. Okay, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, whose faith is it? Is it the sick man's faith? No, it's the faith of the elders. It's the faith of the elders. It's the elders' faith. So, so when, when somebody, in, again, in the word faith movement says healing didn't work because the sick person didn't have enough faith, 
They're wrong. It's they who don't have enough faith. They're indicting themselves. The, the ground of this is in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, the Lord may not heal for a variety of reasons. Healing is not guaranteed, but, but your prayers will be inhibited by unrepentant sin in your life. Now, thankfully, we don't have to be perfect for God to hear our prayers. James 5, 17, 18 says, Elijah was a man with an angel like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain in the earth. Then he prayed again, and he gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So the, the prophet Elijah is our example in this. Now, now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm very encouraged that I'd be considered in the same category as Elijah. And even as, as Elijah ran from from Jezebel, terrified for his life and was, was in a fit of depression. And had to be rebuked by God for it. He was a man who was, who was weak at times and we're all weak at times. But God hears the prayer of faith. God hears the prayer of faith. I've already mentioned uh, George Mueller, but, but when, it come to, when it comes to the gift of faith, I also think of, of Hudson Taylor. He was a, a pioneer missionary to China in the 18th century. I, I, I really recommend you read his, his biography, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Even before Taylor left England, his faith was evident. He, he wrote, To me, it is a very grave matter to contemplate going out to China far from all human aid, there to depend upon the living God alone for protection, supplies, and help of every kind. I felt that the, the one's spiritual muscles required strengthening for such an undertaking. There was no doubt that if faith did not fail, God would not fail. But he wondered, what if one's faith should not prove, or should prove rather insufficient? I not at all learned that even if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. It was a very serious matter to my mind, not whether I was faithful, but whether I had a strong enough faith to warrant my embarking on the enterprise set before me. So even though Hudson Taylor maybe had a, 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 he had a lack of faith in his own faith, but he had faith in the faithful God. And there's testimony after testimony, both, both prior to his, his going to, to China and, and while he's in China, that he didn't, didn't tell anybody his needs except for God alone. And again and again and again and again, God answered his prayers and his faith grew. He, his faith grew in the severe, the soil of severe trials. He understood faith like very few. He said, the secret of faith that is ready for emergencies is the quiet, practical dependence upon God day by day, which makes him real to the believing heart. By God's grace, there, there are those among us who are exemplary in their faith, who are, are trusting in God day by day. They, they understand that, that God is sovereign and loving and wise. They understand that all things will work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so they, on a daily basis, look to, Lord, look to the Lord with the eyes of faith. And then when the trial hits, they're not tossed around because they're grounded in faith. Because they've grown in dependence, conscious dependence upon God, who God is, and all that He's done for them in Christ Jesus. Do you have that kind of faith? The church needs you. The church needs you. The church needs you to be praying. The church needs you to be an example. 
If you have the gift of faith, you cannot keep it to yourself. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. This is, you exemplify faith in your love towards others. As you exemplify and glorify God in, in all of the gifts of service that he has given to his church. Brothers and sisters, you are God's gift to the church. God has gifted you to serve him and to serve the body in a variety of ways. Seek the Lord in prayer. Maybe, I, I hope that, that many of you do, are doing this through our series, that you're asking the Lord to reveal to you how he has gifted you. If you're a Christian, he has gifted you to serve in, in his body and then to seek to, to walk in those gifts for the glory of God. If you're wondering about, about whether you, you have or operate any of these gifts, talk to those who know you best. Ask them what they think. Talk to me. When I, when I was preparing the sermon, I, I thought of many of you as individuals. As I thought about this gifting and as I think about this whole series, I'm, I'm thinking about you. So, so I have, have ideas. I don't, I don't pretend to have exhaustive knowledge because I don't, I don't see it necessarily on a day-to-day basis. But in the, in the context of this body, I see many of you serving in these ways. And and the Lord is glorified. So ask the Lord to provide opportunities for you to explore your gifts and then to confirm them and to develop them further in you for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Omnipotent and omniscient God, we marvel at the mystery of the church that you would take sinful men and women and call them out of their rebellion and selfishness and use them as instruments in your hand through the power of your spirit to build your church. Lord, several of us here have, have natural abilities intelligence and and training. But none of that, apart from the work of your spirit, can be used of you to build your church. This is a supernatural work. Walking and gifting is is a supernatural work done by the Holy Spirit in the lives of the church for the building of the church. Almighty God, we pray that, that this church will be filled with those who are conscious of their spiritual gifting and consciously working in their gifting for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name.